What's up guys, Pastor John here. We pray that this message encourages you in your faith journey and we believe that God has an incredible plan for your life and our hope is that tools like this sermon will help you become who he has created you to be. Now listen, in order to truly flourish and thrive like God intends for your life, it takes community. What I mean by that is we don't believe that simply by attending church online alone that you're going to be able to become every bit of who God has created you to be and who you want to be to grow spiritually. You need other people. And we would love to help you connect with other people right here at Greenhouse. True growth happens when we're rooted in a community that supports, uplifts, and walks alongside us. And so with that in mind, we would love for you to join us in person on Sundays right here at Western High School or in microchurches throughout the week. Um, listen, if you don't live near our church here in South Florida, please reach out to us. We would love to help you find and thrive in a local faith community near you. We're excited to partner with you as we all become passionate followers of Jesus. God bless you. Turn to a neighbor and say, open heaven. Open heaven. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians talking about the culture and scenario as Paul writes this letter to the 1 Corinthians and what exactly it has to do with modern American or North Americans today. Last week, I had the illustrious privilege to bring you a message from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The title was Expel the Immoral Brother. It was dealing with incest, and it was delightful, and, uh, but we, we sort of centered the conversation around how do you deal with confrontation? How do you deal in a godly, healthy, loving, appropriate way with conflict? Anybody ever had conflict? If the person's next to you, don't tap them, all right? But we all need to figure out how to do conflict a little better. This week, we're into another casual conversation, courtesy of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This week is about God's view on sex and sexuality. So if you are a parent in the room and you have a middle schooler, this might be a great moment to afford yourself of the middle school ministry that we have next door that is amazing and appropriate for their age demographic, but that is your choice. I wanna give you a heads up. If you're an elementary school student, you might wanna think about the same parents. Otherwise, the rest of us stand to our feet and let's get ready to talk about sex. Exactly what you thought you'd hear in church this Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we will begin in verse 9. I am very happy that the Miami Dolphins will definitely not lose this weekend because they're not playing. So it's going to be a good football day. It's going to be a good football day. I don't want to talk about college football. It doesn't matter. All right, verse 9. Paul is writing. This is what he says. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you didn't know, now you know. Then he gets more specific. Do not be deceived. As a matter of fact, why don't we all say that together? Do not be deceived. Apparently because it is easy to be deceived in this arena. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Lest you get high and mighty on your high horse, getting all judgy, Y'all were just like that, but you were washed, Paul says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Sing. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. I have the right to do anything. This is a quote. You say, Corinthians, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both. He's kind of parroting back some of what he's heard these Corinthians are saying. He says the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
And by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is united and one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual morality. This is how he wraps up this peppy conversation here. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. Thank you, Siri. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God, and you are not your own? If you follow Jesus, matter of fact, why don't you just say this right now? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Let's pray. Lord, we need help. We need help in lots of areas, but apparently this one is especially poignant and, if we're being very honest, is especially painful for many of us. Speak to us. Minister to us. Bring clarity on the path of flourishing that you desire for our lives and bring healing where there has been brokenness and pain. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. You can find a seat, give your neighbor a high five, tell him get ready. Here we go, it's happening, we're here. Some of you are like, I have been in church my entire life or my first time and I have never had a conversation about sex in church. Well, welcome to Greenhouse and welcome to the Bible. Let me start like this. Have you ever been deceived, tricked, bamboozled? Our seven-year-old Liam, uh, before he was seven, um, is all about one superhero that reigns supreme in his mind and heart and that superhero is... Spider-Man, Michaela knows it, Spider-Man. Any Spider-Man fans? He's all about Spider-Man. All right, some of you, he is all about Spider-Man. I mean, for years upon years, he, would, he had all the costumes. He would be Spider-Man with face painting. It was not a Spider-Man party, mind you. He just got his face painted like Spider-Man because he wore the costume. We were Spider-Man, whatever that is, in rollerblades and goggles. There's Spider-Man in some other form or fashion. Do we have more Spider-Man? There we go. Spy Everyone say, oh, isn't that cute? Liam and Lucy, Spider-Man with sunglasses on, and there's Spider-Man, I think there's probably one other Spider-Man, there's Spider-Man and the ducks, like all of the things were done in the Spider-Man costume because he just loved it, and we went through them very quickly in the Lash household. But I remember one day, and this was a couple years ago, he had a birthday party, and it was, of course, a Spider-Man-themed birthday party. So we're there, his friends are celebrating. I believe it was a pool party, so they were swimming and it was awesome. And he had a whole game plan for Spider-Man to be at his birthday party. And so we're like, hey bud, do you want Spider-Man to come? He's like, no, 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 dad, I am Spider-Man. <laughs> okay, bud. And so his friends were there, they got out of the pool, everyone's getting dried off and changed. He's like, okay, everyone, we're gonna do presents. And all his friends get there and Liam's like, I'll be right back. And he shoots off into his room. And I knew, I knew it was gonna happen. And sure enough, he comes running out, full costume with the mask. Spider-Man is here, dude. That was web slinging, in case you're wondering what that was. Sound effects here, full experience here at Greenhouse Church, like the IMAX. And so he comes out in his Spider-Man costume and, he's, and his friend, like everyone, you know, the, all the adults played along. They're like, wow, this is all, whoa, Spider-Man. And everyone's like, whoa, and his friends were good sports. And he, he comes up to me and, and, and while his friends are there, he comes up to me and goes, Dad, 
it's me, Liam. No! But you, but you, no! And he had so much fun. And then, and then it was like, okay, it's time to open presents. And all of a sudden, like Spider-Man disappeared. And, and Liam's like, hey guys, sorry. I was, and he comes back and it was, you know, it was, hey, there he is, the same thing. And, and I tell the story because I thought it's really cute and I love my boy. Um, but I want to use that for a moment as a potential operating analogy for our conversation this morning. See, Liam was convinced that he was joyfully deceiving all of his party guests. But we knew. We knew. See, actually, the only one that was deceived was actually... Liam. And I wonder if on this topic, we're thinking, yeah, 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 God, I know, I know you, you have like thoughts about that, but really like so ancient, like I'm gonna take my approach to sex and sexuality from a more modern, sophisticated approach. And we think we have outwitted God when it comes to this topic. And all the while, it is not God and all of the heavenlies that are deceived. It's actually us. I was struck all week by Paul's warning. Do not be deceived. Here's why this matters and why it's important to have this conversation. A, we're preaching through the book of Corinthians. B, because apparently according to God, who is always right, by the way, and tells the truth because he loves this, we are, we are apparently very prone to self-deception, especially when it comes to the topic of sex and sexuality. Every age has its deceptions, and they are deceptions because they are deceiving, right? Meaning when you're in it, you don't realize it as clearly. If you're like, what exactly is a deception? Here's my operating term for deception. A deception is any time we go with any other definition other than God's. If we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it means that Jesus always tells the truth, and any time we find another truth, it is actually a lie. It's a deception, Every age has its deceptions, and this is a monster deception, an idol, if you will, in our culture. It, it's one of the top, for sure, in America, in North America, in our modern world. We have come to take what God intended as a gift, and we have deified sex and sexuality. And as a result, we have drifted so far from the sexual ethic that God lays out in the scriptures. And we've become deceived as a culture just like we were deceived all the way back in the garden in this area when it comes to sexuality, we have been deceived that God is holding out on us. Remember, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the core deception that the accuser, the enemy of our soul says, yeah, yeah, we know that God said this, but God is actually withholding good from you. God is actually spoiling your fun. God is actually keeping you from good things. And if you're going to flourish in this life, you need to take it into your own hands and make it happen. And this same deception is, is the same in in this area, when it comes to sex and sexuality. And so as a result, we have bought into the lie that is not a new lie, it is an ancient lie, that we need to become the captains of our own destiny if we are going to flourish in the ways that we desire. And so we've made up our own definitions and we've suffered as a result. You and I, we are sexual creatures and that is not bad. You know who invented sex? God, you're like, can I even say that in church? Yes, God. This would be a great moment to say, thank you, God. God invented sex. It's kind of his idea 
But in this area, in particular, apparently, we are exceptionally prone to deception. And here's the core deception I want to tackle this morning and unpack with us together. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to jot this down. Here it is. Your sexuality is a part of you, but it is not the center of you. I'm going to say that again because this needs to sink in. Your sexuality is a part of you, created by God, a gift for us to enjoy for, with a design purpose in a design context. Your sexuality is a part of you, even an important part of you, but it is not the core. It is not the center of you. Are you tracking with me? Like, I have no idea. Okay, great. All right, let's jump into Corinthians. I want to begin with our church in the same way Paul begins with the Corinthians, identifying the culture that we're immersed in. What does the culture have to say about sex? This is the first movement that I think we need to start with. What does our culture have to say about sex? Now, let's look at the culture of Corinth because you'll find many overlaps and similarities. We've mentioned a little bit the Corinthian culture. By the way, the reason that Paul goes immediately into this diatribe and treatise on sex and sexuality is because he's just dealing with a rampant sin of sexuality in that community. Namely, you've got someone sleeping with their father's wife. And so he says, listen, I handle the specific issue. Now, let me just remind you of God's path because in Corinth, in the cultural framework that these followers of Jesus, Christians, were immersed in, sex was seen as an appetite. If you're hungry, what do you got to do? You got to eat. And if you're feeling sexy, what do you got to do? You got to have sex. This is, and it was a culture of what's called in philosophy, hedonism which meant that pleasures were to be pursued at all costs. Pleasures were the true north of any human individual. Follow your, they would have adages like be true to your passions or if it feels good, just do it, go for it. They would have, they would have things they would say like, listen, you're not hurting anybody. It's not hurting anybody else. Does it sound similar to any cultural framework you've ever lived in? I know we tend to think as we move along, like, man, really? Like, what, what are we gonna learn from some, like, thousands of year old approach to sex and sexuality? Or like, really, do you know we are sophisticated, modern people? Scripture says there's nothing new over the sun. I know we all struggle with chronological snobbery and assume that our epoch has all of a sudden figured out what all those stupid people never learned. Do you realize, like, humans are really the same? And the Corinthian culture was in Lots of ways, very, very analogous to our modern culture. Here's my premise. Our, cultures, our culture's sexual ethic, while broad, meaning kind of anything goes, is broken. Our culture's sexual ethic is broad and broken. Let me show you what I mean. In the 1960s, we had in our cultural context, in America, what's known as the sexual revolution. This was the idea that the malady that was plaguing humanity was the repressive, moral, sexual ethic. And if we were to break free from that and kind of do whatever we wanted and whatever felt good, then we would thrive in abundance like we always desired and wanted. The enemy was just some religious, archaic, Bible, Christian, Judeo-Christian approach to sexuality and and so we, we, we kind of threw that to the wind and said, all right, let's, let's go for it. Now, if that was indeed the villain, we should be thriving right now. Mary Eberstadt, who's written extensively on the subject, defines a sexual revolution as this. The destigmatization 
and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. That's about it, right? Like, that's about where culture has landed. Like, the golden rule of sexuality in our world is consenting adults. If that's good, it's like, man, have a blast. This is where we're at, which begs the question, if, if we have effectively mission accomplished on the whole sexual revolution thing, like we're, we're there as a culture, how is that working out for us? And specifically, when we look at the data, not the religious data, the human data, the social science data, the answer to the question of how is that working out for us is not good, especially for women. I mentioned this, we had a whole conversation about a year ago, and, and I continue, you're just browsing through Google, continue to see articles with very counterintuitive, based on our cultural narrative, and countercultural titles. Here's some of the titles. How the sexual revolution has hurt women. Here's another one. Porn has framed our lives and normalized sexual abuse. Here's a quote from one of the articles. Sarah, age 23, writes this. Growing up, Misogyny, sexual harassment, sexual abuse online was normalized amongst my peers. Libraries of nudes of underage girls were shared on Google Drives. Being groped and grabbed at a party was just kind of normal. As were the unwanted advances, the rape jokes, sexual bullying, unsolicited nude pics. There was all of this exorbitant pressure on young girls to do whatever they saw online. She says, porn was the wallpaper that framed our lives, normalizing it all. She goes on to talk about her generation was sort of this guinea pig generation, the first to really grow up online as digital natives, and, and now this has been their experience. And you're like, John, what's, what's the point? Here's my point. If we were to pause for a moment and step back and look at the current landscape, if we really paused and honestly look, as by the way, social scientists are beginning to do, this is not like Christian researchers here. These are social scientists who are not people of faith. If we were to pause and look around, we would see that culture's sexual ethic is broad and broken. Eberstadt goes on. Our current moment is a wildly contradictory mix of chatter about how wonderful it is that we're now liberated for sexual fun and how mysteriously impossible it has become to find a good, steady, committed partner at the same time. What I'm trying to do is paint the landscape of where we're at now, because if what we're doing right now is working, it's like, man, let's, let's wrap it up and go home and have lunch and enjoy a dolphin's non-win and non-loss. Like, we could go do that. If what we're doing now is working, we don't need to have any more conversation, but it's not. It's not. What has happened in our cultural framework is that sexually we have thrown off all restraint to go after whatever it is we want, only to discover we now cannot find what it is we actually want. And we suffer as a result. I need to begin with our culture's approach to sex and sexuality to, net, to let you know this is not like we're taking some MVP, awesome, rock, and amazing approach that's totally working and comparing it with some old, archaic, antiquated approach to sexual ethics and sexuality. Our current approach is broken and damaging, says the data. The more I thought about it, I'm like, man, our culture kind of uses sex like a drug. Like when you're not feeling good about life, like you go and engage in whatever sort of sexual activity you can find and you feel good in the moment and then you feel horrible afterwards. 
and it leaves you feeling worse. There was a heartbreaking string of articles uh, all about like hookup culture and how you get this rush of, you know, all the dopamine, all the brain chemistry. And then the worst feeling is after, you know, they were talking about after Tinder hookups, like the worst feeling because people are like, oh my goodness. Because it's not actually what you're wired for. You feel good in the moment, it leaves you worse off afterwards. In our culture, we view sexuality as the core center of a person. So much so that for large subsets of our culture, we actually find our identity in our sexual urges as the defining factor alone. We've reduced ourselves to this. And this is a problem because your sexuality, while it is a part of you and an important part of you, it is not the center of you. Our culture, what we functionally do is we deify sex, meaning we pursue it like a god, like a deity, like a thing to be worshipped at all costs, no matter what it takes. And when you treat anything that was intended to be a good thing as a god, that is what the Bible calls an idol. And here's the problem with idols. They lie. They lie. Man, if you just get that next promotion, you're going to be happy. Anyone ever been there? Man, if you could just get a a few more followers on social media and a few more likes on your posts, then you'll be satisfied. Man, if you could just get, the problem with sex as an idol is that idols always lie and they cannot deliver on the promises that they say they will fulfill. And here's my prayer on on the front end of this message, that for whether you're an atheist or an agnostic, whether you are heterosexual, homosexual, same sex attracted, bisexual, wherever you might be at in the spectrum of sexuality, that whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, that you, I, that we would dethrone sex because while it is an amazing gift from God, it is a horrible God. See, it's one thing if we pursued the sexual ethic that culture lays out and we're doing awesome, but we're not. We're not thriving. Hookups are fun in the moment and then they leave us empty because sin is pleasurable for a season, but its end is death. That's what scripture says. That's what so many of us in this room who have a past have, have lived, have experienced. Our practiced infidelity, which, which is awesome before marriage in some ways, like, man, that was fun. And, and then you get into marriage and all of a sudden it leads to heartbreaking adultery because go figure, you play how you practice. And I just, I know you're like, really? Are we really gonna use? Is it possible? Is it possible that the longing that we are trying to pursue was maybe deeper than sex all along? Is it possible that Jesus, by the way, the inventor of sex, thank you, Lord, actually knew what he was talking about? I think it is possible, which brings us to point number two. What does God have to say about sex? Everybody, take a breath. (sighs) All right, so what does God have to say about sex? sex. Culture has decided that sex is the ultimate, penultimate need. It is the real need. It's what we actually need to pursue, and we have gotten plenty of it in our culture. Are we thriving? Are we experiencing life and life to the fullest, deeply fulfilled as a culture, as a people? We are not. We are not. The research is abundant. They, they run these surveys that span generations. They have one called the, I think it's the Human Flourishing Survey. Lowest responses now of any time in human modern history. We are not flourishing empirically. Why? I'll tell you what God would say. God's word says because we exchanged sex for our actual core need, by the way, which existed ever since the garden. Go with me to the beginning, Genesis chapter two. God creates 
heaven and earth, God creates man. The Lord God said, he creates Adam and then he creates animals and Adam's name the animals in Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be what? Alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now we act like in our culture that God and Jesus are hanging out in heaven you know, because he was the preeminent, existed before God and with God. And so he's up there and they're like hanging out and, and Jesus kind of turns to God and he's like, God, for, look at Adam, poor Adam. He is absolutely sexless. God, if we, ju- if we just helped Adam have some sex, everything would be better. God's like, I never thought of that. We act like what the scripture says, it is not good for a man to be horny. We act like what the scripture says, is, it is not good for a man to be sexless. That's not what the Bible says. What does it say? Is it not good for a man to be alone? Alone. The core, I need you to understand this about you, and, and this is God who made you and loves you. Your core need, my core need from the very beginning was not sex, it was intimacy, connection, depth of relationship. And by the way, it still is. Brene Brown has a a quote that says, clarity is caring. Basically the idea that if you can lay things out clearly, that is helpful and loving to an individual. And so as we walk through this passage, I want to endeavor to explain what the Bible actually says. Now, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, this is crazy talk, totally get it. But at least I want us all on the same page with what does God actually say in his word when it comes to sex and sexuality? And here would be my premise, and I just wanna own it on the front end. If culture's approach to sexuality is broad and broken, kind of anything goes, but broken and damaging, Jesus's approach to sexual ethics and sexuality is clear but narrow. All right, so let's look in the passage. Verse nine, Paul is writing, he said, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, we'll pause for a second, what exactly is sexual immorality according to the Bible, according to God? All right, sexual immorality uh, is the Greek word. That Greek word is pornea, pornea. Uh, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is familiar. That's where pornography comes from, pornea. It is a word that is sort of the catch-all biblical word for promiscuity. It includes all kinds of uh, specified sexual sins, including adultery. Now, adultery would have its own Greek word, but it would be lumped into this word pornea. Uh, historically, what has been agreed upon by the, the church and, and the people of God, Jewish and then Christian for the last thousand years, 6,000 years, has been that the biblical definition of sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of marriage. So that would be the biggest broad stroke, clear definition. So what is sexual immorality? It's any sexual act outside of marriage. Which begs the next question, okay, so then what, according to the Bible, is marriage? Like, what is the biblical framework of view of marriage? Now, again, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you're like, man, I disagree with that. That's fine. You are totally welcome to do that. But I think it's important that we just at least all know, well, what did God actually say? In Genesis 1, we're given this unique dichotomy back and forth of what's happening in creation, Um, There's all these differences. There's heaven and there's earth. There's evening and there's morning. There's land and there's sea. There's day and there's night. There's light and there's darkness. And then God creates humanity. Scripture says in his own image as sexually different and distinct creatures, male and female. 
Genesis 127, it says it like this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It's not just some archaic sentiment that we have in our framework. It's in the Bible. A few verses later, Adam and Eve joined together in what would be the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Starts in verse 23. Now the man, this is Adam, Adam, said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. There comes the idea. And they become one flesh. What's interesting is Jesus actually references this passage and it goes from uh, sort of a detail of what's happening with Adam to this third voice perspective that speaks in. Jesus says, by the way, that voice that chimes in with this whole, that is why a man shall leave his father and mother was actually God. That's God setting the definition according to how Jesus lays things out. Now this passage, Genesis 2.24, is sort of like the John 3.16, if you will, of the marriage passages quoted throughout the New Testament, quoted all throughout the scriptures, used all throughout the Judeo-Christian tradition from Judaism for 4,000 years into Christianity, quoted by Jesus himself. This is the passage, which means in our cultural tradition, quite like in the Corinthian cultural tradition, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, man, this is sobering stuff. This is not culturally in vogue, and yet it is given from a God who has a heart of love and compassion for people. 1 Corinthians 6 says the sexually immoral, those who actively and unrepentantly practice sex outside of the covenant of marriage defined in the Bible as between one man and one woman, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if that was not heavy enough, it gets even better. It continues. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Now, often this has been used in very inappropriate ways in Christian spaces to beat up on people who are navigating through various elements of the spectrum of same-sex attraction, sort of the clobber verse. But it is a verse, if you believe the heart of God, his path is designed, not like the enemy tries to convince us in Genesis, to withhold good from us, but to keep us on a path of blessing and flourishing. So what is this men who have sex with men in the Bible. What's this talking about? For the first 4,000 years of the Jewish tradition and the subsequent 2,000 years of Christian history, there was overwhelming consensus on what was being said, namely exactly what is said. However, in in light of uh, probably within the last decade or so, there's been a recent movement, um, sort of a growing movement. God and the Gay Christian is a book by Matthew Vines who sort of uh, represents in a lot of ways this movement. Um, Basically, the argument uh, argument is essentially, well, the Bible's not saying what you think it's saying. I I preached, by the way, an entire sermon on this last year. If you want to go back in the archives or if you're watching now and you're like, I want, it's in the Navigate series. It's called Navigating LGBTQ+. Um, I want to give some time here, but I do not have all the time to unpack all of this. I want to give us a summarized argument, though. Essentially, the idea from Matthew Vines would be what's, what's, what's happening in the scriptures and what Paul is talking about and what the Bible's talking about is actually not what you think. What it's actually talking about is non-consensual uh, sort of gay or homosexual rape uh, or, or forced sex. It's not talking about some sort of like mature adult consensual relationship. Um, 
I will let you know I have looked into it. We spent a bunch of time researching it, dug into all of the voices and all of the counter thoughts, and basically the scholarship is absolutely not there. The scholarship is not there. Uh, Paul knew of enduring same-sex relationships because they were absolutely a thing in the Greco-Roman world that, by the way, he was a student of. He was a student of culture. He would not have been oblivious to the fact that there were enduring, consensual, adult, same-sex relationships, and Paul still says clearly in his letters, reinforcing other areas in Scripture, no, I, I get it, it's still sin. It's out of bounds for what God has designed for his people to flourish and thrive. Another one of the objections from this camp would be, well, we're not exactly sure what Paul's talking about because in some of these passages, this one included, um, Paul makes up a word and we don't really know what the word means, which is sort of true. Um, the, the word that Paul uses here is a Greek word, arsenakoitai is the word. The word translated arson is men, koitai is bed. So his word literally means men who bed other men or men who are in bed with other men. And it's it's scholarly disingenuous to say we don't know what that means he he literally uses the same root words that are used in leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20 which by the way are not in the cultural law section where you're like well those, those maybe don't apply because they were it's in the moral law section just like lying just like murder now what i appreciate about the niv translation which i used this morning is that they appropriately translate the actions of the word if you're reading in another translation it might say nor the homosexual and so it would make us think well well what what the scripture is making clear is that homosexual or same-sex attracted feelings are not sin just like if you're married and you're attracted to someone that's not your spouse what is sinful is what you do with that attraction not necessarily having that attraction you're attracted with me we are all tempted to act in ways think in ways that are ungodly temptation is not the sin the sin is whether you act on that in your mind or in your actions you tracking with me? So this is why Paul uses this word. It is emphatically compassionate and clear. He's saying, listen, what God is forbidding here is acting on those impulses, just like for people that are attracted to the opposite sex, for people that are attracted to the same sex. Homosexual feelings, same-sex attracted feelings are not the sin, just as lying or slandering feelings are not sin. It is what you do with those feelings and the actions in your mind or in your body with your life. Now, this is where this conversation gets challenging in our modern cultural framework because you're saying, well, John, I, I, I appreciate you unpacking this and I appreciate the clarity and I'm sure this is not your favorite sermon to have to deliver in front of a bunch of people. Thank you, but this is just who I am. And I get that. This is deeply personal, especially in our cultural framework because we have actually made this an identity issue. Because of our current cultural approach to sex and, and the accompanying worldview where sex was intended to be a gift from God and we have actually turned it into a God or an idol, this means that everything reorients itself in our cultural framework around your sexual desires. But God says you are so much more than that. You're a beautiful daughter, you're a son, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. There's destiny, there's purpose, there's inherent value, dignity, worth, good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. Your center is not your sexual urges and impulses. You are so much more than that. And God does not reduce us to a ball of hormones and sexual urges. He looks at us holistically. 
One of the authors that I found very helpful in this conversation, and if you're here and you're navigating through same-sex attraction or you have a friend that you're walking through discipleship relationship with or just a friend that you care about, Sam Sam Alberry is a helpful voice. He wrote a book, Is God Anti-Gay? Is God Anti-Gay? And this is what he says. It sounds clunky to describe myself as someone who, quote, experiences same-sex attraction. But describing myself like this is a way for me to recognize the kind of sexual attractions I experience are not fundamental to my identity. They're part of what I feel, but they are not who I am in a fundamental sense. In fact, I am far more than my sexuality. Take another kind of appetite. I love meat. A plate without a slab of meat just doesn't feel right to me. Amen. Preach it. He says, but my love for meat does not mean I would want someone to think that carnivore was a primary category through which to understand me. Now, I want to be clear here because often what happens is uh, it's really any people, but especially religious people, tend to yell very loudly about the sins that we don't struggle with. And so historically, the church has been horrible in this area, and we've been unkind and unloving and ungodly, and we repent. Amen? Which is why Paul lays out this conversation. He's like, he lays out this in light of a bunch of other sins. There's no pet sins here. He says, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Then he continues, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It has been historically very easy for the religious Christian church even to yell really loud about homosexuality and sexual immorality while we are living in uh, divorce and remarriage that the scripture calls adultery and we do that at a rate that's exponential and we don't say anything about that one. I'm gonna leave that one right there. But Paul says, listen, we need to look holistically at the reality of the scriptures because God is giving us a path for our flourishing, for our thriving. God's view on sex and sexuality is absolutely narrow in comparison to the cultural view. By the way, Jesus talked about this. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. I know in our cultural framework, we assume that anything narrow is automatically wrong or, or nearsighted or, I don't know, irrational, um, We all understand, though, there are some fundamental truths in life that are quite narrow, like the law of gravity, pretty narrow. What goes up? How dare you? It's just true. It's just true. We get this. I know sometimes, like, we get so caught up in things, we get duplicitous in our thinking. Like, the reality is, you might not agree with the sexual ethic of Scripture. I would, and and, and honestly, if if our current cultural moment, sexual ethic was doing awesome, I'd be like, hey, man, yeah, but it's not. So maybe Jesus knew what he was talking about. Maybe God actually does have a point. Culture takes sex and tries to make it a God. This doesn't work because idols always lie. The religious approach takes sex and makes it gross. You might be sitting there cringing in your seat right now, and all I have to say to you is blame the inventor. His name is God. He invented this thing. But the way of God, the way that God has designed for sex and sexuality is it was created to be a gift, assisting us in moving towards our deepest need, which is connection, which is intimacy. Remember, it is not good for man to be, what, alone. 
This is where it points to in the passage. Look at verse 16. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. The purpose that God has laid out for sex, which is an amazing gift, is to make permanent our core need, which is not sex, it is intimacy. Sex is simply a divine tool that is, thank you, Lord, an amazing divine tool utilized in the proper context to pull together our core need, which is intimacy. The feeling of closeness, the thought that I am with someone and will never be left alone, fully seen, fully known, fully loved, embraced, one flesh. But this is what I think is particularly compassionate in Paul's approach here. In verse 17, God gives hope for those not able to have sex. Whether not married, never will be married. By the way, like Jesus and Paul, just to be clear, or biologically not able to have sex. Look at verse 17. Verse 16, it's all about marriage. The two will become one flesh. But then verse 17, he says, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You get married, you're a teammate with your spouse for life, scripture says, till death do you part. But if you're not married, guess who you get to be a teammate with? God. God. The friend who sticks closer than a brother. Sam Albury in his book was relaying an interaction that he had. Basically, he's like, hey, listen, I'm a, I'm a male who, who nav is navigating through same-sex attraction and for the gospel and to follow the sexual ethic of Jesus as a disciple of Jesus, I've just chosen to be celibate for the rest of my life. I'm not attracted to females, so I just will, will be unmarried and celibate and not have sex for the rest of my life. And after a session, he said someone, invariably it happens all the time, someone came up to him and they said, man, Sam, you're so inspiring, but you're kind of like a unicorn. Like you hear about this, but you never meet someone like this. Like... And they said, I just, I just, I'm so sorry. He's like, well, what do you mean? They're like, I just feel so bad for you. Like single for life for the gospel. And this is what they said. They said, you must be so lonely. And his response was very intriguing. He said, you know, I, I battle with loneliness, just like any human, married or non-married, having sex or not having sex, battles with loneliness. It's a human kind of problem. He said, but... To be quite honest, I have an incredible community and I have amazing friends and I'm really plugged in and connected in my church and I haven't really been lonely, lonely in years. And he said they kind of walked away stunned and he walked away with this thought. He said, you know, sex and intimacy are not the same. It's possible to have a lot of sex and yet find no intimacy. Because sex is designed to actually deepen and express intimacy that already exists. It cannot create it in and of itself. That's deep. He said, but it's also possible to have a huge amount of godly, healthy intimacy without sex. This means you can have a deeply fulfilled life filled with connection, a secure identity, intimacy, like Sam Albury, like Paul, like Jesus, without sex which gives hope for the single college student who all of their peers are having sex and they're wanting to follow Jesus. It gives hope for the same sex attracted man or woman who wants to follow Jesus and it might mean like Sam Albury, a lifetime of celibacy and abstaining from sex. It gives hope for the husband or wife who are not connecting sexually to stay faithful to their spouse and stay faithful to Jesus. And I, I get it in our sex obsessed culture. This sounds like crazy talk. You're like, Pastor John, you have lost your mind. We're going to send you to breakthrough next week. What in the world? And if our cultural approach was working great, 
I, I would, you could send me up there. I'd, I'd take the, you know, I might go anyways, but, but it's not. Our, our cultural approach to sex and sexuality, it's not working. It's leaving us broken. It's leaving us empty. And it's leaving the void. Because we're pursuing the wrong end. And here's my prayer this morning for you and I, for us, for our church family, for Guyana, that we would choose Jesus's narrow way that leads to life. That we would choose Jesus's narrow way that leads to life. Look at the reminder from Paul, how he ends this chapter. Flee from sexual immorality, he says. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. He says, listen, sins are sins. They, they break God's heart. They destroy us. He said, but sexual sins, they do something. They are uniquely targeted and destructive and uniquely painful. Do you not know? Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God and you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He reminds these followers of Jesus, immersed in a culture of rampant sexual immorality, that God loves them, that God cares for them, that God sent his son Jesus to die for them, that God has provided a way to rescue them. And ultimately, God is not trying to spoil their fun. He wants them to thrive. And the question Paul lays out for these Corinthian believers is the same question that I want to lay out for these Greenhouseian believers. Are you willing to trust God with your life? and your sex life, which in some ways feels even more intense. Are you willing to trust God with your life and your sex life, even over our culture, even over your emotions, even over your urges? Because while your sexuality is a part of you, it is not the center of you. We have been deceived. And I'm not even saying it's a malicious deception, but it is insidious to the core. Your sexuality is a part of you. It is not the center of you. You, know, you want to know what the center of you is? The part longing for intimacy and connection. The part longing for the friend who sticks closer than a brother. The part that wants to know, is there someone out there who sees me with all of my flaws and loves me anywhere? That's the center of you. That's what the gospel speaks to. Now, this is important to point out, and, and we'll get more into this even in next, next few weeks as we talk about marriage and singleness. But according to God, um, marriage and sex are not necessary for human flourishing or ever promised in the scriptures. You're like, what? It feels almost like sacrilege. Go look it up. Paul actually says, and we'll read this later. He says, hey, in fact, if you can handle it, it's better not to marry. This is what he says. Don't look at your spouse at that moment. That'd be a bad one. He says it's better not to marry. Like I know if you grew up in any sort of like the Christian purity culture, it was like, man, save yourself. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't have sex before marriage. And then when you get married, sex is gonna be amazing. It's like the sexual prosperity gospel. Not in the Bible. Not in the Bible. Like there's no promise from God there. I pray all of your sex lives are amazing in Jesus and the covenant of marriage, but that's not like a promise from God because it is not a necessary thing for human flourishing. He has given us all things we need to pertain to life and godliness and sex is not one of those promises. Now, to be clear, I am very thankful for my marriage. I am very thankful for my wife, Nancy. I very much enjoy my sex life with my wife, Nancy. Sorry, mom and sorry, Nancy. All, right, all of those things are there. 
That is all true. And yet I am still waiting for this like magical unicorn of self-actualization that comes into the picture when you get married and start having sex. Like I, 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 this is gonna blow your minds, but all of my problems were not solved when I got married. Single people, like can I get an amen? Like single people, all of my problems were not solved when I got married. So I'm like, it created some of my problems. Actually, that's, that's, that's your thing, that's not mine. But all of my problems were not solved when I started having sex. Like single person, college student, online, in the room, listen to me for a second. If you are unable to find deep fulfillment while you are single and sexless, you will not magically find it while you are married and sexually engaged with your partner. The challenge just morphs from immorality to adultery. The call is to find a centeredness that exists outside of marriage or sex because if you do not find it with him, you are putting an undue weight and pressure on another person. Imagine that pressure. Man, I'm kind of unfulfilled in life and a little bit miserable, but when I find the person, have you met people? We're a mess. Who's gonna fix you? Right? but we don't think about these things. And so we enter in broken and fragmented like humans are, like we all are, but then we assume, but when I get married, I'll be whole. That's bad math. Half a person and half a person doesn't make a whole person. It makes a whole mess. But we don't talk about this stuff because we just buy into the cultural narrative that man, my whole life, my salvation will be found through my sexual encounters. No, it will not. You've been lied to. I am so sorry. Don't be deceived anymore. God loves you. You were made to live without sex. You were not made to live without intimacy and connection. That is what God pinpoint targeted as the need for humans. It is not good for man, for woman to be alone. So don't be deceived. The sexual part of you is good and right but when we make it our center, when we make it the core defining factor of our identity and we look to sex to fill our intimacy need, you will be left disappointed and empty every single time. And the reason Jesus tells us to flee sexual immorality is not because he's a prude and it's not because he's trying to spoil your fun, it's because he loves you. And when we live outside of the narrow sexual ethic of Jesus, every time we make sexuality our center rather than a component of who we are, our leader, instead of submitting to the lordship of Jesus and his narrow way, it leads to death every time. Which is why I'm praying that we would choose Jesus' narrow way that leads to life, that leads to life. When you submit to the narrow sexual ethic of Jesus, just like any other narrow path of Jesus, what you might lose in the short run, you gain in this, you get God. You get God's presence, you get the favor of God, like my mom spoke about. There is a path of blessing that is narrow, but in it you will find every bit of everything your heart has been longing for in the deepest way. Are there temporary disappointments? Heaven, yes. But it's always worth it in Jesus. Life and life abundantly. All the good things he has planned for your life. Your sexuality is a part of you. It is not your center. Your sexuality is a part of you. It is not your center. Your sexuality is a part of you. But it is not your center. 
And the center of you is craving what God promised to fulfill your deepest needs. Connection, intimacy, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We've been deceived. But our biggest deception is not actually in our sexuality. Our biggest deception and where Satan has deceived us the most is the love of God. Let's go back to verse 19. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God and you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, in light of that, honor God with your bodies. Do you feel that? Even just hearing it. You are not your own. That feels so, you almost want to bow up and put, the, put, put up your dukes. For you were bought at a price. And all of a sudden you remember, this is not some pedantic deity in the sky who's trying to spoil your fun because he's insecure and needs your worship and adoration. This is the one who said, I love you so much that while you still hate me, I'm gonna die for you so you can flourish and thrive. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, therefore, in light of the mercy and love of God already demonstrated, honor God with your bodies. You were bought at a price, washed, sanctified, justified. Came across a story this week of Lord Oliver Cromwell. You know, casual reading. During the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell, who was the Lord Protector of England at the time, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. The execution was publicized and was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, that evening, the bell did not sound. When they looked into the matter, the soldier's fiance had climbed into the bell tower and had clung to the great clapper of the bell, preventing it from striking. When she was summoned, she had to give an account to Cromwell for her actions. Trembling, she wept as she showed her bruised and bleeding hands. Cromwell's heart was touched, and he says, Your lover shall live because of your sacrifice curfew shall not ring tonight. Friends, your biggest deception is not about your sexuality. Your deepest deception, the one that the enemy of your soul can't stand for you to grasp is understanding and knowing how loved you are by God that he gave his own life for us. It was not just some pie in the sky ideal that he tossed out like we've had empty promises and big words. God so loved you and I humanity that he showed his bleeding and bruised hands to say, listen, and I've demonstrated that on the cross. He is not trying to spoil your fun in the sexual ethic that he lays out. He is not trying to ruin your life with the path he has prescribed. He loves you more than anyone you will ever know or ever encounter. And he gave his life for your good, for your rescue, for your redemption, and ultimately for your flourishing. And what the center of you is longing for is that. A desire for intimacy, to belong, to be valuable, to be safe and secure in someone's love forever. And only one person can do every single bit of that. And his name is Jesus. Friend, God loves you. 
you're here and you're navigating through same-sex attraction, man, hear it clearly. God loves you. We love you. If you're here and you're navigating through heterosexual attraction and sexual morality and you're not, God loves you. If you're here and you feel so broken, like you've got nothing to offer in this area, think back to the story of Mary who had been caught up in all sorts of demonized situations and prostitution. All she had to bring to Jesus was her painful history of sexual brokenness. And Jesus tells the story for thousands of years because because he loves you and he wants all of you. However beautiful or however big a mess, he loves you. He wants you to thrive. He is not withholding from you. He wants you to flourish. He cares for you more than any Instagram influencer, more than any relative, more than any good well-intentioned or ill-intentioned friend. He loves you.